Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. So, coming up in episode 109 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we begin with a look at a Top ID 19 update, particularly for bars, restaurants and other hospitality and leisure venues. We then travel to Wales, where Public House Wales have had a Top ID 19 related data breach, which has itself raised questions in the Welsh Assembly. We then look at some updated guidance from the UK government for employers on Top ID 19 testing of their employees. And we then have an article with some guidance on working at home and staying GDPR compliant and what both the employer and the employee can do in that situation to try and ensure that GDPR compliance is as strong as you can make it. We then have an update on the data breach at the Northern Ireland Historic Abuse Inquiry and then news that Warner Music faces class action after its data breach. We also have news of a class action in the Marriott Hotel's data breach and that class action is due to be held in the High Court of England and Wales. We then travel to America where we learn that Dunkin' Donuts has settled a data breach lawsuit and then back to the UK for a report on a data breach at the Pensions Management Institute. We then travel to Scotland where a potential member of the Scottish Parliament, a Scottish Nationalist Party candidate, has had a data breach involving data belonging to the actual Scottish Nationalist Party. We then travel to Poland, where a university has been fined $13,000 after a data breach. And finally this week, we have a quick look at email data breaches and why they happen and what you can do to try and reduce them happening. So as usual, a mixture of articles for you. I hope you find something there that's useful and informative to you. And as always, if you have any feedback for us, we're always very grateful to receive your feedback. Please just email feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive and wherever possible we act on them and include the improvements in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. But unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, we can't always promise to respond to each piece of feedback individually. This is an important coronavirus update. And we begin this week with news that here in the UK, the rules for venues collecting data of those people who are visiting their establishment have changed and have become much stricter and venues that now don't comply with this requirement can find themselves facing a fine of up to £4,000. These new rules came in from Friday the 18th of September 2020 and designated venues also now have a legal requirement to maintain records of customer contact details and display an official NHS QR code poster in each entrance to their building. The rules on collecting contact information come into effect from Friday the 18th of September and the QR code posters have to be displayed by Thursday the 24th of September. If you do not currently have a NHS QR code poster to display in your venue, then you can obtain one online by going to http colon slash slash over Oscar Arthur Roger Alpha Lima O for Oscar dot UK uniform kilo forward slash lowercase d delta capital O for Omega capital P for Peter capital B for Bravo and then a numeric five. 
So that's http colon slash slash o-r-l-o dot u-k forward slash d and that's all in lowercase and then capitals o-p-b and then numeric 5. So if you go to that URL, you can put in the information you need to get your NHS barcode poster, which you then need to display at each entrance to your premises. So coming back to these rules, from Friday the 18th, pubs, bars, cafes and restaurants in England will also now need to take bookings from no more than six people in a group, ensure that people are not meeting in groups of more than six people on their premises, and make sure that there is sufficient space between tables. It's now also mandatory for a wider range of businesses, including hospitality, close contact services and leisure venues, to select customer, visitor and staff contact details from Friday the 18th of September. This is vital for the NHS Test and Trace Service in England to contact the necessary people if coronavirus outbreaks are identified at your venue. And as we've just said, from Thursday the 24th of September, these businesses will also need to display the official NHS QR code posters to make it easier for people to check in at different premises once the NHS app is rolled out nationally. If individuals choose to check in using the QR code poster, they do not need to log in via any other route. The regulations will be enforced by local authorities who will have the power to issue fines up to £1,000 for venues that are failing to comply or the police as a last resort. Fines will rise up to £4,000 for repeat offenders. Businesses will be expected to make sure their customers are aware of the rules around QR codes by displaying posters and speaking to customers directly. There is also a GDPR implication to this. Because you'll be collecting customer information, you must make sure that this is covered in your privacy policy and that your privacy policy gives details of this being one of the reasons that you're collecting the information. So you may well need to update your privacy policy and if you need any help with that, please do just drop us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and we'll be delighted to help you. It is very important to bear in mind that customer information that you collect for the purposes of 12ID19 NHS Test and Trace can only be used for that purpose. You must not use those details for marketing purposes for your venue. With cases rising, it is vital that NHS Test and Trace continues to reach as many people as possible to prevent further transmission of the virus. Businesses have a duty to ensure this function is in place and those not complying will face fines, said Health and Social Care Secretary Matt Hancock. Business Secretary Alex Sharma said, Businesses up and down the country have taken great steps to welcome customers back safely, but at this critical moment in the fight against the virus, we need to take those tough measures to reduce the risk of another national lockdown in the future. In order to keep these venues open and protect jobs, it is absolutely vital that businesses comply with these new regulations and make sure their customers are following the rules, he said. When someone enters a venue and scans an, an official NHS QR code poster, the venue information will be logged on the user's phone. The device will check if users have been at that location at the relevant time, and if the app finds a match, users will get an alert anonymously with advice on what to do based on their level of risk. The Rule 6 regulations apply to hospitality venues, including pubs, bars and restaurants. Services included in these new legal requirements are hospitality, including pubs, bars, restaurants and cafes, Tourism and leisure, including gyms, swimming pools, hotels, museums, cinemas, zoos and theme parks. And close contact services, including hairdressers. Facilities provided by local authorities, including town halls and civic centres for events, libraries and children's centres. As we said, it would be an offence for a business to fail to adhere to the Rule of Six, respecting all exceptions to this when taking a booking, allowing entry to a group of more than six people. 
Once groups are within the premises, businesses also risk offending if they fail to advise groups not to merge in ways that breach the rules, as this is also an offence. Businesses will also need to ensure that there is adequate distance between tables, 2 metres or 1 metre plus if people wear masks, and prevent customers from dancing. The following information should be collected by the venue for those people that have not checked in using a QR poster. Customers and visitors will need to provide their name, and if there's more than one person, we draw the name as a lead member of the group, and the number of people in the group, which draws to be a maximum of six. They will also need to leave a contact phone number for the lead member of the group of people, at the date of the visit and arrival, and wherever possible, the departure time. If, for example, you're a hairdresser, where the customer's interacting with only one member of staff, then the name of the assigned staff member should be recorded alongside the name of the customer. No additional data should be collected for this purpose. And venues will also be required to collect the names of staff who work at the premises and the time that they start and the time that they finish, and a contact phone number for each member of staff and the dates and times the staff have been at work. We obviously all sincerely hope that these measures will be enough and that there won't be a need to put the whole of the UK back into lockdown, but please be assured that if there is any news on COVID-19 and also GDPR implications, then we'll be sure to bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay home, stay safe. A data breach at Public Health Wales caused a row in the Welsh Assembly this week. To give a bit of background, Public Health Wales has admitted to a data breach that resulted in making public the personal detail of more than 18,000 Welsh residents who had tested positive for COVID-19. The National Public Health Agency in Wales said that the incident, which happened on the 30th of August this year, was due to an individual human error. Owing to the data breach, personally identifiable data of 18,105 COVID-19 cases in the country were uploaded to a public server. The details of the cases were searchable by anyone who was accessing the website, said Public Health Wales in a statement. The Public Health Agency said it had carried out a risk assessment and sought legal advice after the incident. Following these, Public Health Wales had been advised that the risk of identification of the individuals impacted by the data breach was judged to be low. The agency said it had removed the data from the server on the morning of 31st of August after being alerted to the breach. This left the data online for 20 hours, during which it's believed it was viewed 56 times, claimed the Welsh Public Health Agency. The data was for all the Welsh residents who tested positive for the COVID-19 virus between 27th of February and 30th of August this year. As of now, there is no proof that the data has been misused, said the agency. Public Health Wales Chief Executive Tracy Cooper said, We take our obligations to protect people's data extremely seriously and I'm sorry that on this occasion we failed. I would like to reassure the public that we have in place very clear processes and policies for data protection. In most of the cases, that is 16,179 of them, the information exposed personal details such as initials, geographical area, date of birth and sex. However, the data breach incident saw 1,926 people residing in nursing homes or other enclosed settings having the name of their setting exposed due to the same postcode. The Public Health Agency said that although the risk of identification for these individuals is higher, it was still considered low overall. The agency said that an external investigation had been launched into the full circumstances leading to the data breach and any lessons that needed to be learned. The probe is being headed by the Head of Information Governance at NHS Wales Informatics Service. Public Health Wales said anyone concerned that their data or that of a close family member may have been breached and wanted advice should firstly read the frequently asked questions at www.phw.nhs.wales, then email them at phw.data 
at wales.nhs.uk if they have any additional questions. In the Welsh Assembly, First Minister Mark Drayford said that he'd found out about the major coronavirus data breach 11 days after his House Minister, Vaughan Dessing, according to accounts given in the Senate by the pair. Mr Dessing said he received a serious incident alert on the 3rd of September, but Mr Drakeford said he found out only 11 days later. In the Senate, Mr Drakeford said he did not know when officials and ministers other than himself had been informed of the breach. Conservative Senate member Andrew R.T. Davies called for an investigation by the Permanent Secretary into how the First Minister claims to have been kept in the dark on such a serious issue. At First Minister's questions, Welsh Conservative Group Leader Paul Davies called for the First Minister to apologise to those affected by the incident. Mr Drakeford replied, I learned of this data breach yesterday and I learned of it as a result of the Public Health Wales statement. It is a serious matter when data regulations are not properly observed. He said Public Health Wales had been right to apologise to those concerned. Thankfully, he said the breach lasted for less than a day and the initial inquiry suggested no harm has been done as a result, but that is a matter of luck rather than anything else. Mr Drakeford said it was right that Public Health Wales had instituted an inquiry and had informed the ICO, the Information Commissioner. Pressed by Tory Senate member Andrew R.T. Davies on when the Welsh Government was informed and which minister was the first to be told, Mr Drakeford said, I only know when I was informed. I don't know the answer to those other questions, nor would I expect to know them just standing up here in the chamber. But Vaughan Dessing later told Senate members he was informed by a serious incident alert on the 3rd of September, after officials were told on the 2nd of September. That is entirely normal, he said. We don't believe anyone has come to harm, but it's a serious breach and it needs to be treated seriously. That's why there's an independent investigation, he said, promising that a report on the matter will be released publicly. Andrew R.T. Davies said... This either points to a seriously dysfunctional working relationship between currently the two most important people in the Welsh Labour government, or someone's not telling the full story. There are also serious questions as to why Public Health Wales and Vaughan Dessing sat on this breach for two weeks before making it public. Public Health Wales, in answering a question as to why it took two weeks before the public was informed, said the time between the breach itself and the announcement included notifying the Information Commissioner's Office and the Welsh Government of the breach, seeking legal advice from GDPR experts, conducting a risk assessment, liaising with the NHS and local authority partners about the incident and mitigation strategy, and establishing an independent investigation. After these steps have been taken, we made the announcement in order to maximise media and public engagement. We expect there will be more information to come out of Public Health Wales and from the Information Commissioner's Office, and as we receive updates, we will bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. Here in the UK, the Department of Health and Social Care has published updated guidance for employers on coronavirus testing. This sets out the legal obligations and best practice for employers to follow if they are considering implementing or already running a employee testing regime. Employers may offer alternative private provision in accordance with this guidance, for example for individuals with symptoms who cannot easily access an NHS test or for those who do not have symptoms but there is no obligation on employers to provide a testing programme. Some employers may consider running a testing programme to give confidence to employees and their customers in the workplace and to help protect business continuity. Before deciding whether to conduct a testing programme for COVID-19, employers are advised to consider a number of factors such as the scope of the testing programme, for example whether the focus of the programme is staff with symptoms or without symptoms, whether it would cover all individuals working on your site. 
the frequency of testing, arrangements for individuals who refuse to be tested, how test results will be used, and whether the programme is compatible with the employer's legal responsibilities, including health and safety and discrimination laws, and of course very importantly including GDPR. The information about employees' health, including whether or not they've been tested positive for COVID-19 or have particular symptoms, is regarded as special category data under GDPR. Employers should only test employees if they can comply with the GDPR obligations relating to the processing of such data. The ICO says that employers can rely on their health and safety duties as a ground for processing special category data in these circumstances, but that they should carry out a data protection impact assessment focusing on the new areas of risk before introducing testing. Employers should process employees' health data only if it's necessary and proportionate and should collect the minimum data necessary and ensure that it is kept securely. Employees must be provided with information about the processing of this data, including what house data will be collected, what it will be used for, who it will be shared with and how long it will be kept for. In addition to implementing a robust testing policy before introducing a testing programme, employers should ensure they have complied with their data protection obligations under GDPR and have updated their sickness, disciplinary and data protection policies. If an employee refuses to take a test, they cannot be forced to do so. That said, it may be open to employers to take disciplinary action against such an employee, but this will depend on the particular circumstances, including the nature of their work and why the employer considers the testing is necessary. At the moment, this guidance applies to England only, but we're expecting that equivalent guidance will be published for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland within the next few days. In terms of communicating the results back to the staff, the guidance advises employers that any communication should be transparent and should set out how the testing programme is operated, including the purpose of the testing, the consequence of refusing to take a test or share the result, and the support staff will be given through the process. Employers are strongly advised to consult with staff associations or unions before implementing a policy. In terms of contact tracing, employers may want to introduce an internal tracing system alongside their testing programme. Individuals identified as contacts by an internal tracing system who do not have COVID-19 symptoms and have not had a positive test result do not have to self-isolate unless they've been contacted by NHS Test and Trace, but they should avoid contact with people at high increased risk of severe illness from COVID-19. An individual who has been identified as a contact by an internal tracing system but not by NHS Test and Trace will not qualify for statutory sick pay. The giant advises that if employers decide that such an employee should not be in the workplace and it is not possible for them to work from home, they may remain entitled to full pay unless their employment contract says otherwise. While the guidance encourages employers to keep staff informed about potential and confirmed COVID-19 cases, as we've said several times when we've been talking about COVID-19 and employers in previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, they should avoid naming individuals if possible and should not provide any more information than is absolutely necessary. Stay home, stay safe. Perhaps not surprisingly, with lots of people working at home, we've received a number of inquiries from listeners about what you can do to minimise the chance of a data breach with your staff working from home. So we've put together a brief checklist, and what you can do as an employer is, first of all, Make sure that you provide all your employees or you ask all your employees to make sure that they're using secure passwords. Secondly, wherever possible, set up two-factor authentication on 
all your systems, whether that's having a way of SMSing your toes out to people, or whether it's a way of using something like Authy to provide a code to your employees. But try talking to your technical people about setting up two-factor authentication wherever you can. Make sure that all your work PCs and laptops are set so that they go to sleep automatically after a couple of minutes without use, so that if your employees working at home and other people are around them and they wander away from the computer, then someone else can't sit down and tap away at the computer whilst your employee is elsewhere in the house. Obviously make sure that you've installed malware security software on all your computers and make sure that staff are using computers that you provide, not their own PCs, but laptops or computers that you are providing so you can make sure you know what's on them and make sure you instruct your staff that they're not to install any additional software onto those PCs without asking you first whether whether they can. Provide training sessions on everything to do with GDPR, including how to recognise malicious emails, how to send an email correctly to avoid a data breach, how to handle company information and more. Be sure to monitor all of your accounts regularly, including emails and bank accounts. Contact the correct organisation if you're notified of or detect any suspicious activity. Or of course you're always welcome to contact us here at helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Make sure your company, if possible, makes use of a virtual private network, a VPN, and that all the staff are connected to it for everything work-related. Setting up a VPN is not that difficult on the whole and does give you a much greater level of security. And use PayPal when providing or paying invoices from any unknown entities. Because by using PayPal, then the person you're paying doesn't gain any access to your card or bank account details. So if that's what you can do as an employer, what can you do as an employee? Well, your employees, again, should be using secure passwords provided by your company. Make sure you don't divulge any business information outside of the company. Be sure to update your devices and software whenever your company suggests that you should do so. Don't use your work laptop for personal things. And don't use your personal laptop for anything work-related. Let your employer know at once if you notice any suspicious activity. Be careful what you share online. Use HTTPS URLs when browsing to ensure that the communication between you and the website is secure. If your company has a VPN, then make sure you stay connected to the VPN for anything work-related. And with paper documents that are in your possession, make sure you shred any sensitive documents. And again, coming back to the employer here... It's on the employer, really, to make sure that employees have a way of shredding documents that's secure. And that really means making sure they have a cross-cut shredder. And they're not that expensive these days, so make sure you order a cross-cut shredder for each of your employees. So useful things there for employers and employees, and we've put them together onto a fact sheet for you, which you can access by going to www.gdpowerweeklyshow.com forward slash work from home. Or one word. If you've got any additional suggestions for what people can do to keep secure working from home, then please do drop us a line to feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com and we'll try and bundle them all together and bring them to you in a future article in the GDPR Weekly Show. And now, the rest of this week's news. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you might remember that back in episode 93, and indeed last week in episode 108, We mentioned about a data breach from the Northern Ireland Abuse Inquiry. Well, institutional abuse survivors at 22 institutions run by churches, charities and state bodies in Northern Ireland have reportedly refused to accept 
compensation of £1,500 per person offered in response to the data breach which happened in June this year. An email sent by the Office of Interim Victims Commissioner Brendan McAllister disclosed the names and email addresses of as many as 250 abuse survivors who survived institutional abuse at 22 institutions in Northern Ireland over the past 73 years. As advocate for the interim victims, McAllister participated in the historical institutional abuse inquiry that was initiated last year to investigate allegations of abuse at a number of institutions in Northern Ireland. The inquiry recommended that all the abuse survivors be offered a compensation between £7,500 and £100,000 in lump sum payments. That's for the abuse they suffered, that's not to do with the data breach. The data breach occurred when a monthly newsletter signed by a staff member from the office of Mr McAllister disclosed the names and email addresses of 250 abuse survivors, forcing the survivors to state that they felt dishonoured, exposed, vulnerable and let down so badly due to the disclosure. In response to the massive data breach that received widespread coverage, Mr McAllister's office offered a financial compensation of £1,500 each to the 250 victims. Not only was the offer promptly rejected, the victims are now seeking adequate compensation and are in discussions with the Northern Ireland Executive. According to the BBC, law firm KRW Law, as well as solicitor Claire McKeegan, have been approached by abuse survivors to represent them during the negotiations. It is likely we will proceed to obtain expert medical evidence on behalf of our clients in order to quantify the impact of this appalling situation, McKeegan said. Commenting on the fresh compensation claim made by victims of the data breach, Tony Pepper, CEO of Egress, said this should however serve as a timely wake-up call to all organisations which directly or indirectly handle customer data or all the data of users associated with third parties, that complacency is not acceptable and could have severe financial ramifications. Stating that a class action taken by the affected victims via legal firms could see compensation ranging from £7,500 to £100,000 per person, Pepper said that with the escalation of the no-win-no-fee data breach compensation specialists in the market, it has never been more critical for organisations to get a firm grip on the security of the data they handle and have a clear understanding of their risk exposure. Because whilst we may have seen recent reductions in fines handed out by the ICO to the likes of BA, data breach compensation specialists will be far more aggressive in their bid for adequate compensation, he said. Back in episode 108, we told you about a data breach at Warner Music, and a lawsuit has now been filed against Warner Music Group following that data breach that compromised customers' sensitive personal information. Just to give you a little bit of background, attackers were able to access personal data entered by customers into the impacted Warner Music sites between April 25th, 2020 and August 5th, 2020. Information compromised in the hack included names, email addresses, telephone numbers, billing addresses, shipping addresses, credit card numbers, card expiration dates, and most importantly, CVC and CVV codes, which are, of course, the three numbers on the back of the card. And they're the crucial ones, because with those, together with the card details and the expiry date, of course, means that bad actors or fraudsters can take advantage of that data and go shopping with those credit cards, particularly online. Following the cyber incident, Morgan & Morgan has filed a class action lawsuit against the music recording company on behalf of two plaintiffs, Levi Toombs of Marysville, Ohio, and Esteban Trujillo of Orlando, Florida, purchased items from websites operated by Warner in July 2020 and May 2020, respectively. Both men subsequently received Warner's notice of a data breach document at the beginning of September. 
Coombs and Trujillo alleged that Warner failed to properly secure and safeguard personally identifiable information, including, without limitation, unencrypted names, email addresses, telephone numbers, billing addresses, shipping addresses, payment card numbers, payment card CVV security codes and payment card expiry dates. The plaintiffs further claimed that the company failed to provide timely, accurate and adequate notice to plaintiffs and similarly situated WMG customers, who are the class members, that their personally identifiable information had been stolen by hackers and precisely what types of information was unencrypted and in the possession of unknown, unauthorised third parties. In August, the same payment cards that Coombs and Trujillo had used to make purchases from Warner's hacked websites were used by an unknown third party or parties to make two unauthorised purchases, one of which was declined by the bank after appearing suspicious. These large companies know the risk posed by cybercriminals and continue to be cavalier with their customers' personal information, said Morgan & Morgan attorneys John Morgan and Jean Martin in a statement. The fact that this breach allegedly went on undetected for three months demonstrates the alleged lack of care taken by Warner Media Group to secure its customer information. We don't yet know when this case will come to court, but we will, of course, keep an eye on it for you and bring you any updates in a future episode of the GDPR Week Show. What's up, Isabella? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I will try it now. Regular listeners to the GDPR Week Show will know that a number of times we've mentioned the data breach at the Marriott Hotel Group or in fact the database of the Starwood Group, which was since acquired by the Marriott Hotel Group. This week, the British journalist Martin Bryant has revealed through his blog that he is bringing a class action before the High Court of England and Wales, representing 7 million guests residing in England and Wales. His class action aims to obtain compensation due to the loss of control of personal data suffered as a result of the data breach which took place between 2014 and 2018. It's believed that the data includes passport numbers, dates of birth and possibly credit card details. This class action is interesting because it's been brought based on an opt-out. In other words, all the guests residing in England and Wales at a Marriott Hotel who made reservations with the Starwood Group up to September 2018 were automatically included as plaintiffs unless they'd opted to exclude themselves, which of course is the opposite way round to how class actions normally work. In a similar way, Oracle and Salesforce are subject to a class action in the Netherlands, which was filed on August the 14th this year, by the Privacy Collective, a not-for-profit association, due to the alleged undue use of personal data through the third-party cookies, blue tie and trucks, with the objective of obtaining compensation for the damage suffered. This is the largest class action ever brought in the Netherlands, with the plaintiff estimating, based on the invisible number of users affected, the total extent of the damage could exceed 10 billion euros. So with both of these large class actions, we will follow them with interest and bring you any updates in future episodes of the GGBR Weekly Show. Over to America now and in New York, Attorney General Letitia James announced a settlement with Dunkin' Brands, franchise of Dunkin' Donuts, resolving a lawsuit over the company's failure to respond to successful cyber attacks that compromised tens of thousands of customers' online accounts. The settlement requires the company to notify customers impacted in the attacks, reset those customers' passwords, and provide refunds for unauthorised use of customers' stored value cards. Dunkin' Donuts will also be required to maintain safeguards to protect against similar attacks in the future, follow incident response procedures when an attack occurs, and pay $650,000 in penalties and costs to the state of New York. 
Back to the UK now, and the Pensions Management Institute, the PMI, has reported itself to the Information Commissioner's Office following a cyber attack which resulted in hackers gaining access to the names and email addresses of around 1,700 people. It's understood that the brute force attack, which took place earlier this month, resulted in a data breach which saw the hacker gain access to names and email addresses contained within an email inbox of one of the PMI's members of staff. Individuals affected by the breach were then sent an email purportedly from the PMI, which then asked them to click on a link which led to an unknown third-party website, so a typical phishing attack. The PMI said its membership database had not been affected by the attack. PMI Chief Executive Gareth Tantred explained, Last week, one of our staff had their Outlook email account targeted and hacked. The perpetrator used a VPN through a Manchester data centre to gain access to the individual's email inbox. Once inside... They were able to see a number of member and other stakeholders' email addresses. It is not known at this stage where the attack originated from in the world, but our IT experts are working in close collaboration with Microsoft to investigate. The PMI said as soon as it became aware of the incident, it initiated its internal protocols in respect of data breach management, engaging the support of the Information Commissioner's Office, IT specialists and its legal advisors. He explained, as soon as the sophisticated attack was discovered, the staff member's email account was shut down. Our IT company immediately began a full and thorough investigation and they assure us that our IMIS members' database has not been compromised, nor any financial systems, nor have any of our other IT infrastructure assets due to our own VPN, virtual private network, being in place. They've also checked all staff laptops and have confirmed them to be clean with all security measures up to date. The PMI said its investigations indicate that just under 1,700 people had their details compromised and said it was in the process of contacting everyone affected. Tantred added, I would like to publicly apologise for any inconvenience that may have been caused by this attack and offer our reassurance that we are taking all appropriate steps to ensure this will never happen again. The PMI said it would inform individuals should results of its investigation suggest further impact on the processing of their personal data and urged anyone to receive the email to delete it immediately. Tantred said, if you've not already done so, please delete the suspicious email. As an additional precaution and in line with our incident response protocol, we request all users of MyPMI to update their passwords as soon as possible. The PMI said anyone with queries on this issue should contact it at CEO Office, all one word, at pensions-pmi.org.uk. If we receive any further update on this from either the PMI or the Information Commissioner's Office, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Help! I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Bye kids! Thanks Mike! To Scotland now and the Scottish National Party has been forced to report complaints to the ICO following concerns about a data breach by a potential member of the Scottish Parliament. Inverside Councillor Chris McKennelly is said to have access to the personal information of party members and supporters without their permission. It's understood that Mr McKinley has used data relating to Inverclyde SNP members sending notices to their home addresses. Supporters are believed to have received these in July this year, with a number of complaints of a data breach subsequently made to the SNP party headquarters, as well as the Information Commissioner's Office the ICO. 
it is understood that SNP party rules state that a councillor can only access members' details if they live in the ward they represent, but Mr McTannery is said to have contacted members across the entire branch. The ICO confirmed it had received reports of concerns from the Scottish Nationalist Party. A spokeswoman for the ICO said, We are aware of concerns about correspondence sent by an SNP candidate. The SNP have contacted us and indicated they are satisfied the issue does not merit the threshold for data breach reporting to the ICO. The councillor, who was SNP group leader in the Clyde Council until last month, announced his intention to seek nominations to become a Holyrood candidate at the end of July where he will challenge sitting Greenock and Inverclyde MSP Stuart McMillan. He was questioned on the issue on Twitter in response to a post announcing his candidacy bid, but failed to respond. The councillor has twice stood unsuccessfully for deputy leader of the SNP and served two terms on the SNP's National Executive Committee. We have approached both the Scottish Nationalist Party and Mr McKenley for a comment, but neither have got back to us by the time we are broadcasting this episode. If we do receive any update, either from the SNP or from Mr McKenley, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GPR Weekly Show. Over to America now, an office superstore, Staples, has recently disclosed a data breach that exposed the order details of nearly 2,500 customers. In an email sent to customers, Staples said, We recently learned of unauthorised access to a limited number of non-sensitive customer order data on staples.com, which may have included information about one of your orders. This may have included your name, address, email, phone number, last four digits of your payment card, and information about the cost, delivery and product ordered. It did not include your account credentials, i.e. your username and password, or your full payment card number, and there is no indication that it has resulted in any purchases being made on your behalf. It's thought that the breach was possible due to a lack of security measures in the order tracking systems used by Staples customers. These services allow customers to locate and track their purchases by entering their order number and zip code. However, the company was issuing a sequential order number for each purchase and adding the zip code was not mandatory in the order lookup process. As such, by adding a valid order number on the tracking page, unauthorised users could check the tracking information of a package. The route and delivery address of the shipment would be revealed, allowing for a straightforward lookup for the matching zip code. When combining the valid order number and zip code, a bad actor could, pre- could subsequently look up the full order details of a customer. Information from fewer than 2,500 customers was affected, the company said in a statement. We investigated and took steps to remedy the situation. The company takes the protection of its customer data extremely seriously and has notified users whose order data was determined to have been impacted. Although Staples assures customers that their account credentials and full credit card numbers were not impacted by the breach, affected shoppers are advised to monitor their account statements and check for any unauthorised activity. As with any data breach that involves the exposure of personal information, victims should remain vigilant for phishing attacks via email or phone. Cybercriminals can create official-looking messages that could leverage the incident, asking the recipients to confirm additional personal or financial details. Never provide your personal information to individuals contacting you online or via the phone. When in doubt, search for the official phone number of the company and call them directly. What's up, Mike? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I'll try it now. To Poland now, and a data breach at a top Polish university has highlighted the pitfalls of using personal devices to process sensitive information. The Warsaw University of Life Sciences 
was found to have exposed the personal data of students and prospective degree candidates in November 2019. This week, the president of the Polish National Personal Data Protection Office, the UODO, fined the institution $13,000 for a breach of GDPR rules. Up to 100 students may have had their information exposed after data was stored on the employee's personal device, which was itself later stolen. The university was not aware that the employee was processing students' personal data on their personal device, a statement from the university says. The Polish ICO said these circumstances indicate a breach of the principle of confidentiality and accountability specified in GDPR. Further to this, the university has stored the data of prospective students for five years, which the Polish ICO said breaches the principle of storage limitation in GDPR. The Polish ICO said that the fine imposed also took into account the failure of the university to implement appropriate organisational and technical measures. It went on the supervisory authority took into account that personal data breach concerned candidates for studies at the university for the last five years covered a wide range of data and that the number of persons affected could be up to 100. It was also important for establishing the amount of the fine that the controller had no knowledge of the processing of personal data on the employee's private computer, nor did it control the processing of data by failing to verify on which media the personal data of candidates for studies selected from the IT system were processed and by failing to record this operation in the IT system. It also established that the university had not implemented appropriate organisational and technical measures to ensure that personal data was processed securely. The ICO was keen to stress, however, that the institution had cooperated with the ICO and has taken meaningful steps to now process its data more securely. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Anyone who's received GDPR training from us will know how I emphasize the fact that the most common data breach is someone sending a document or other information by email to people who shouldn't be receiving it deliberately or more when the wrong people are simply included in the CC of an email or even in the BCC of an email. And the other data breach is when people make use of the CC field and this email addresses from outside organizations to other people maybe in outside organizations which the owners of those email addresses have never given their consent to their email addresses being shared with others. So the first thing we always say there is to make sure that you use BCC in your emails rather than CC unless your email is solely to other people just internally within your organization. That way, even if you do include them, at least the people receiving the email can't see everyone else's addresses who've received the same email. And a recent survey has shown that almost all businesses, 93% in fact, have suffered a data breach via outbound email in the last 12 months. And of course it's thought that this problem has only been made worse by the arrival of COVID-19 and the subsequent increase in people working remotely from their office, as we've covered earlier in this episode of the DigiPower Weekly Show. But it's not just emails with the wrong addresses on or addresses included in CC when they shouldn't be. There's also this concept of spear phishing, whereby criminals target particular individuals within a company and it's a popular method of attack by cyber criminals. So really, we just ask everyone to be more alert. Make use of BCC where you can, rather than CC. And if an email arrives, sit in your work email inbox 
and you're really not quite sure about it, then carry out precautions, carry out your own checks before you actually reply to that email. Make sure that it's not a spear phishing attack. And as always, of course, if you need any help with anything like this, particularly with emails, then please just send us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our experts will get in touch with you and gladly give you some advice on what you can do to improve your own situation. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.